Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. The census is Congress's responsibility. And Congress delegated that the task responsibility to the, the Commerce Department. Okay. But it's Congress's constitutionally. And the court has just said what the administration was doing as it exercised that responsibility was a lie. And we're not going to accept that. Now the president thinks he might be able to just skirt this whole thing by issuing an executive order requiring the Secretary of Commerce to add the question. That's not how executive orders work. Am I wrong about that? As with everything in the Trump administration, there are people who are trying to make arguments justifying it. And look, this builds on the entire theory of a unitary executive that there are mm -hmm. folks in conservative world who love. I don't really understand how you can call yourself a conservative and believe that the president needs to act like a king. But we are in that universe now. This is Sarah. This is Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. We're back. We're back from vacation. Beth, did you have a good vacation? I had a wonderful vacation. How about you? 
I did. It was full of summer, lots of swimming, lots of lake time, lots of fireworks. We had a really good break with close friends that came to visit. So we hope all of you also had a fantastic Fourth of July week. We appreciate your generous messages that are like, y'all deserve a break. Have fun. Don't worry about us. We'll be fine. We did have exciting news before the break. We wanted to remind you our tour dates are posted on Instagram, Facebook, all the places. So our tour of Nuance Nation, I love the name, Nuance Nation Tour, will start in August in California. We'll be going to Kentucky. We'll be going to Washington, D.C., We'll be going to Texas. Y'all are super excited about Texas. So check out the dates. Mark them on your calendar. We hope to have ticket information up by the end of this week. And now that I've said it on the show, that'll give me a good deadline. So look for that in your feed as well. And thank you, Katie Early, who came up with Nuance Nation. That was not our idea. So we really appreciate, Katie. We're going to send some books your way to thank you for that tour title. And thanks to all of you who've sent us ideas for what could make for a really awesome live experience for you. We're working very hard. Elise is killing herself to get this together on a very short deadline. Thank you, Elise. Thank you to all of the people in each city who are going to be helping us with this. And we're just, we can't wait to get on the road. Sarah, I kind of miss traveling. Is that weird? Like we traveled so much at the beginning of the year and I was so looking forward to the summer off. And now I'm like itching. My away suitcase is like over in the corner, quivering a little bit. When are we going again? (laughs) So while we were gone, we actually got a fair amount of good news. Some of it was very difficult. We'll talk about that later. But there were good news stories led in large part by the women of the U.S. national soccer team. Oh, my God. I love them so much. Well, I'm sure everyone knows that they won their second World Cup title in a row for all together. And it was a big victory because this team has not been a mere soccer team, right? They have been a leader Mm -hmm. for women's equality. On International Women's Day, all 28 members of the team filed a federal gender discrimination lawsuit against the United States Soccer Federation as a class action in Los Angeles. And you saw right there at the moment of victory, the crowd started chanting about equal pay for these women. Equal pay. So I think there's this trope in sports that the best story is an underdog story. And what the women of the U.S. national soccer team have taught me is that, you know what, just pure and total dominance is just as good, just as good. Sarah, you should know that as a Kentuckian. (laughs) Right? As a Kentucky basketball fan, we do not like underdog stories. We like pure and total dominance. Total dominance. Oh, my God. It's just amazing. They never lost. I don't think they were even down in any of the games. I think they were tied at one point, but never down. I mean, they are insane. They make the soccer ball do things that I didn't know soccer balls could do. Did you know soccer balls can be kicked in a corner? I didn't know that. I think that is a really important point, because if we really want equal pay for these women, a lot of us need to start attending these games, right, and buying their stuff and watching them on television and showing up for this team the way they have shown up for the United States. I wanted to share an opinion piece from The Washington Post titled, The USWNT is after something far more subversive than just better pay. I kind of want to read the whole thing, but I know that's probably not good entertainment, so I'm just going to read a small 
section of it. It says, they're after something far, far more subversive than just better pay. Ever since Brandy Chastain whipped off her jersey and displayed her Fight Club torso back in 1999, the audience has understood this team as revolutionary. There's more than just plaintiffs suing over discrimination. They play the game as a form of incursion, as a battle for female sovereignty. And so the stakes have always been higher for them than just the final score. This creates a chronic pressure to perform at the highest level, and they deal with it and even welcome that pressure as a valuable trial in its own right. Some teams will visit pressure, Coach Jill Ellis said so eloquently, but we live there. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. Also, I love Megan Rapino so much, or as Glennon Doyle calls her, our president. I think she's I've been fell down a deep, deep, long read hole about her last night. Did you read the article about her brother? Mm-mm. Oh, my God. He's he's been in and out of jail, like basically his entire adult life. He's been addicted to heroin and just their kind of relationship and his struggle and watching her succeed. And he's turning his life around. It's just so, so good. See, this is all the stuff I love about sports the most. Just the like the story, the victory. Oh, it's so so good. Congratulations to the U.S. women's national soccer team. Mm. Thanks for giving us that win, girls. Thanks for just giving us all something to be excited about, for real. I think the passion that you see from a lot of people who don't know anything about soccer on this is that there aren't many places where you mm-hmm. see such a clear representation of what women in workplaces go through all the time. There are lots of women who are under that constant pressure to perform and who thrive under it and who are fearlessly making space for themselves in spaces where they haven't been welcome before. And so to have people who are so vocal about that on a field where you can actually cheer for them and people can actually get excited about it as opposed to in a corporate boardroom, it's just nice to have that outlet. I feel like this is a window into what men get from sports all the time. And it's relatively new for women to get that same kind of foil for our own stories. Well, and I just think, you know, it's July 4th week. We were all having a hard time with many of the national news stories, which we'll talk about later. And in 2019, there's not a lot of patriotic fervor where everybody's on board, right? And so I love that they they just gave everybody a win. They just gave every, even there is a lot of politics wrapped up in this team I think it still was just this pure expression of patriotic USA, USA. You know, like it just it just felt so good. I'm seriously going to tape a photo of Megan Rapino with her arms wide open like that, just basking in it. I just feel like that is like the most beautiful visual of power and joy and victory. And I just want to look at it every morning for the rest of my life. Oh, so good. I even loved the Nike commercial. I didn't want oh, to, it's so good. but I did. It's so good. It's so good. It's all so good. I'm, I'm telling you, I could do it. I could just read, watch, talk about this soccer team for like the next three months. Maybe I will. I don't know. I mean, I'm an adult. I can do what I want. I can be obsessed with the U.S. women's soccer team now. Well, let's take a hard turn here and go mm-hmm. over to Sudan. Still a good news story. I mean, it's t- it's yeah. a tenuous good news, but it's a good it's But we're going to take it. So That's right. If you haven't been following what's happening in Sudan, that country's history is just filled with violence and conflict. And in April, their president, a dictator, 
was ousted in a military coup. He had been in power since 1989 when he himself gained power through a coup. So the defense minister announced that the president, al-Bashir, had been arrested. And he said, hey, everybody, we're going to suspend the Constitution. The military is going to take control during a transition period. And you're going to have a 10 p.m. curfew. Not surprisingly, citizens who had been demonstrating for actual democracy were not thrilled about that. So they continued to protest. On June 3rd, there was a massacre of protesters by Sudan's security forces, kind of a paramilitary group. About 100 people were killed. Hundreds of people were injured. There were reports that the security forces raped women and robbed protesters, Mm -hmm. which caused a standoff in the negotiations between civilian opposition leaders and the military. But this weekend, the African Union and Ethiopia helped broker a power-sharing deal that puts Sudan under the control of a joint sovereign council with five military officials, five civilian leaders, and one additional civilian that both of the groups agree on. What's tenuous about this is that the military is going to be in charge for the next 21 months before a civilian leader has 18 months in power and then a democratic election will be held. I mean, I think when you are a nation like Sudan that has been through so much and that has suffered so much trauma... I really do think any deal that they reached can only be seen as hopeful and positive. Because when when the talks broke down and there was all this violence, you could just feel from the coverage, from people reporting on the ground, like people were terrified that it was going to be like some of the, you know, the worst moments in their history. It brought up all this trauma and... I was, I mean, just following the reporting, it was it was so scary, much less to be on the ground there. So I think that they were able to come to a tentative agreement with power sharing where there's just at least a tiny step forward is is really positive. And it's still scary. The military in charge for the next 21 months is scary. That June Mm -hmm. 3rd incident is being investigated, and I think a lot of credibility rests on whether those security forces Mm -hmm. are going to be held accountable under the military. Well, and anybody found accountable isn't supposed to be able to serve on the council either, so hopefully they'll stick to that too. There are also concerns about making sure that women and marginalized groups are represented in the transitional government, and here's where it might be helpful to just orient us geographically a little bit. Sudan is in northeast Africa. It borders Egypt, Eritrea, Ethiopia, the Central African Republic, Chad, Libya, and South Sudan. So Sudan was partitioned after a civil war, and South Sudan took almost all of the oil wealth with it. So Sudan has been in economic crisis for many years, not helped by a corrupt dictator who mismanaged the economy tremendously. This is about the same size as Alaska. Darfur, which you've probably heard a lot about because many celebrities have used their platforms to talk about the genocide in Darfur, that is a region in western Sudan. The U.S. considers Sudan a state sponsor of terror because its government officials were directly involved in planning the 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center, and they have connections to al-Qaeda and Hamas and Hezbollah, among other groups. We've been working since the Obama administration and the Trump administration has actually continued these efforts to lift some sanctions 
sanctions and have Sudan cooperate with us on counterterrorism efforts. But we still have sanctions in place related to the genocide in Darfur. And the most challenging part of this entire transitional government joint council idea is that the Internet is mostly blacked out in Sudan. Very difficult Mm. to have transparency and accountability in a society where you cannot get online. So here is hoping that this is a successful agreement, that the people of Sudan continue to advocate for their rights and ultimately land in a much better spot three years from now. Okay, the next development internationally is is not the source of progress or hope. And that is the situation with Iran. So... We all know at this point that the United States withdrew from the JCPOA and has increased the sanctions on Iran where they are feeling increasingly desperate. So over the last few weeks, they have announced they are violating specific portions of the JCPOA. Most recently, they are enriching uranium beyond the limits of the JCPOA. So it's a really small amount of enriched uranium they're supposed to have for nuclear energy, and they're going beyond that. now. It should be said that they're very, very far away from how much enriched uranium they would need for an atomic weapon, but they seem to be announcing these violations and in in a bargaining chip with the European countries also signed on to the JCPOA as a, you get us out of these sanctions or we're just going to increasingly violate the JCPOA. And I, I don't know how well that's going to work. We have, you know, I don't. I think the idea that the Trump administration looks at Iran and says, we withdrew the with from the agreement, but you must keep all the requirements within the agreement is problematic. I don't know how well they're going to respond to this. We're going to increasingly violate the agreement. And I'm just not sure what the European countries are supposed to do. I tweeted during the Democratic debate that I would like us to stop using Iran deal as a way to describe the JCPOA, because that makes it sound Mm -hmm. bilateral. And it does sound like Trump can just sit down with Iran's leadership, complex as it is, and negotiate something better. And that's just not the situation. So reminder, periodic reminder, that the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, which is the Iran Agreement, was negotiated by many world countries over a couple of years. It is not a deal. You know, it is more like a treaty. Now, that brings up all kinds of legal issues as well about how the Obama administration did it and Congress's role. But it's important to remember how complex all of this is. And I agree with you, Sarah. I don't know how the European signatories to this agreement proceed when Iran is violating the agreement and one of the major signatories to, I mean, we we broke the bargain, right? The United States broke the mm-hmm. bargain here, but European countries are trying to live up to their obligations and now Iran isn't. It's a really bad scenario. And the president's words about it do not comfort me. Over the weekend, he said, they better be careful. Iran is doing a lot of bad things the way they want it. Mm. They would have automatic rights to have nuclear weapons. Iran will never have a nuclear weapon. Nope, that's not what they want. They want the sanctions removed, but whatever. Well, I think that's an important point. What is this really about for Iran? Yeah. Carrie Boyd Anderson, who is a good friend of the podcast, and we often refer to her as our Middle East expert, wrote in Arab News about how conflict between the U.S. and Iran could play out in Iraq. 
And her article reminded me that we still have 5,200 soldiers in Iraq today. Mike Pompeo has expressed concern that Iran-backed militias might launch rocket attacks on U.S. forces in Baghdad, and the United States pulled its non-emergency personnel from the Baghdad embassy. If you have not listened to our conversation with Sean McFate about his book, The New Rules of War, and you are interested in the escalating conflict with Iran, I highly recommend that you take a listen because Iran is not we're not going to have a traditional World War II style conflict with Iran. And Carrie points out that Iraq could be the centerpiece of any kind of escalation in a way that is hugely destabilizing for the entire region. And I think Sean McFate's concepts about how countries like Iran use asymmetric techniques are just very informative in this entire discussion. We also wanted to discuss the developments at the border. We had a congressional delegation come back with some really horrific reports, as well as the Department of Homeland Security's Office of Inspector General, which released its final report on overcrowding at several border facilities in the Rio Grande Valley. We also, through some really good reporting from ProPublica, got an insight into the culture of the Customs, Border, and Patrol on Facebook groups and some of the really racist, terrible posting done with inside these groups. So really, really hard, difficult reporting continues to come up from the border and how migrants and refugees are being treated there. You have a compliment for the other side, right, Beth, as far as some progress being made, hopefully, in in an effort to deal with this terrible crisis. I wanted to compliment Representative Benny Thompson. He is from Mississippi. He's a Democrat and chair of the House Homeland Security Committee. He sent a letter on Friday to the Homeland Security Department's acting inspector general requesting an investigation into whether top leadership within Homeland Security knew about and addressed some of the violent, racist, misogynist comments and pictures in social media groups for Custom and Border Patrol. And I was really encouraged by this because I think Congress's oversight is severely needed, especially because so many people in leadership are acting. We have so few Senate-confirmed or otherwise permanent employees running these groups I cannot imagine what regular, good-hearted CBP agents, people who are out there just trying to do their work every day, must be feeling with these reports all Mm -hmm. over the news and a complete absence of leadership that's going to be there for longer than five minutes to get them through this. We received an email that I will think about for the rest of my life from the spouse of an agent who was deployed to the border about how horrific it is when you are trying to be a helper in this scenario to see the conditions and to see the absence of leadership and to see the politicization of every aspect of what they do. And so I am encouraged that someone in Congress is stepping up to say, hey, we have a role here, and I hope that Congress continues to do that. I just think at this point, it took us decades to get to this crisis point. There is no doubt that there is a surge in people, right, that there are higher numbers. But it was our, you know, there's no, there's not an absence of our role 
in South America that is creating the the situation where there are more people flooding out of those countries. You know what I mean? Like we just we made all kinds of decisions with regards to immigration and foreign policy and homeland security over the last few decades. And we are seeing the manifestation of those decisions. And it is essential and important that we deal with the human rights violations, the mistreatment of children as quickly as possible. But we dug a deep hole, and it's going to take us a while to get out of it. And I think that's just the hard reality we're all facing right now, that it wasn't, you know, I think with this administration, it felt like, well, this is a Trump problem, and we're all just going to march and protest and say, stop separating families, and we can all go back to our everyday lives and pretend like the crisis is over. And that's just not true. I mean, I think that the Trump administration has absolutely accelerated the crisis, but it didn't start in 2016. And we have been ignoring all these factors that have been building and building and building to this crisis point. And it is going to take sustained attention and pressure on our representatives to prioritize this problem and find a long-term sustainable solution as well as a short-term solution to the just mistreatment of our fellow human beings. It's just, you know, it's it's hard and it's going to not go away quickly. And I think that's what everybody is sort of realizing. Yeah, there's a particular callousness about this administration's approach, but it isn't new. Mm-hmm. And would we prefer a callousness that we know and can respond to versus one that's sort of dressed up and and shielded from public view? Right. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. I do know that I am increasingly frustrated with the sort of close the camps social media outrage about this because I think it is so simplistic and ignores the fact that, you you know, yeah, close. Do I want this happening? Of course not. Then what? Then then Mm -hmm. what? You know, it's it is as ridiculous to say close the camps and we got this as the people who are saying build the wall. Either way, you are ignoring the needs of actual human beings who are showing up at our border and Either way, you're proposing a solution that is not a real solution. It is tied up in either your love or your hatred of a particular president. This issue is so much more complicated than him. And I abhor the way he has dealt with this situation and his his administration has dealt with this situation. I abhor the fact that we don't even have permanent leadership in the organizations responsible for dealing with it. And as you said, We did not get here under President Trump completely, and we will not exit this under President Trump completely. I would love in the next set of debates to hear from the Democratic candidates some specifics about how we get out of this and what level of priority Central America has in their agenda. Because you're right, Sarah, we we've done a lot at least since the Reagan administration and probably before that that has caused us to be where we are today. Sarah, you should compliment the other side before we move on to the census. You might have heard, Beth, 
But Robert Mueller is coming to Congress to testify. It's on my calendar. Yeah. July 17th. So as we look forward to his testimony and there are increasing calls for impeachment, the Washington Post has been doing some interesting reporting and looking back on the impeachment of Bill Clinton, specifically the Democrats who voted to impeach and the Republicans who voted not to impeach. So there were five Democrats who voted to impeach and 30 Republicans who voted not to impeach Bill Clinton, which, you know, in considering today's strict party line votes, even though this was not a bipartisan time in history, I think is an interesting thing to look at and examine. And they interviewed Connie Morella, who was a Republican that voted not to impeach Bill Clinton. So I'm complimenting her because I thought the interview was really interesting and her perspective on why she did what she did was fascinating and enlightening and important as we move forward with Mueller's testimony and any conversation surrounding impeachment of Donald Trump. She said, the bottom line when I made my decision was that what the president had done was perjurous. No doubt perjury was committed, but it did not imperil the nation. And I just thought that was really interesting. I thought her her thoughtfulness with regards to the decision, understanding that it was a political risk was interesting. And I'm complimenting Connie Morella this week. So 2020 is a big year. And we are going to today discuss a constitutionally mandated process that requires everyone's participation. In addition to the presidential election, it is the census. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college, y'all. He's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. 
That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day, Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. While we were gone, the census was in the news. Specifically, a census question about citizenship. There's a Supreme Court decision. We're going to get to all that. But we thought we would cover a quick census 101 basics to get everybody caught up. So we have a census because the Constitution says we have to. It's in Article 1, Section 2, Clause 3, if you're interested. And the 14th Amendment requires an enumeration of people to determine the membership of the House of Representatives. If you start reading the actual text of the 14th Amendment in Article 1, Section 2, Clause 3, you're not going to feel good about America because this Mm -hmm. is part of where our very ugly history Mm -hmm. is in terms of who we count and on what terms we are represented. We decided to write all men are created equal and then count some people as three-fifths of a person. Y'all were doing some mental gymnastics inside the Constitution. Blessings. And say horrific things about indigenous people. We didn't include women in any. Mm-hmm. It's awful. Okay. It's awful. But that is the Bad. source of authority for the census. The census is in Article 1. That means it is Congress's job. And please hold on to that. It's very important as we talk about what happens next. <laughs> Put a pin in that. So Congress passed the Census Act in 1790, where it said, hey, we're going to assign responsibility for completing this task to the Secretary of Commerce. I think the idea of counting every single person in 2019 sounds a little bit silly. But it's been really important throughout our history, and it's still really important in our present. So the census, first of all, determines the number of seats that each state gets in the House of Representatives, and it's used for states to apportion their legislative districts. Plus, it goes way beyond that. You have all kinds of statistics on population, housing, government funding. It uses it to formulate policies. State governments use it for education, infrastructure issues. Even the private sector uses that data for all sorts of reasons. So, I mean, I don't think it sounds silly because people be moving all the time in 2019. But it's not just really counting. It's gathering this data that we use to help our government function. So people ask us on Instagram and Facebook when we said we're going to be talking about the census, why we don't just do sampling instead of trying to count every single person. And the answer is we do sampling. 1990 was the first time the Census Bureau actually used sampling for the official population count. There have been criticisms of this 
people think it's unconstitutional because the Constitution does say actual enumeration of people. Federal courts have said as long as the government is doing both, we're actually trying to count every single person and using statistical sampling methods, we're okay. So some households are asked to complete more detailed information over longer periods of time to assist the Census Bureau. Has this ever happened to you, Beth? We got this probably hmm, three years ago. Yeah, I've gotten some of the long forms, too. Mm -hmm. Well, he came and then he came back. He came and he said, we need you to be a part of the more detailed information on like jobs and labor. And so he came. We filled it all out. He came twice, and I think they called us three times. It was a lot. I'm not going to lie to you. They're hiring all these people to go door-to-door. They're hiring people to make all these calls. I mean, it's a big, expensive operation. It's estimated to cost $15.6 billion in 2020, and it's very complicated. It's The GAO has labeled the 2020 census a high-risk project. Lots of work to do, and it's got to be ready to go. And if you look at that GAO site, which we'll link in the show notes, it's fascinating to see how the GAO is the Government Accountability Office. It's fascinating to see how they methodically review what the Census Bureau is proposing, what the Secretary of Commerce has has instructed. So they are making an effort to go more digital with this census. A lot of Americans are going to receive a postcard with instructions to complete the census online instead of all the forms this time. Mm Mm-hmm which means the government is having to figure out the technology of this. There are cybersecurity issues. There are access to Internet issues to think about. So we are trying to move in the right direction. But like with any other big infrastructure project, it's going to be a lot of trial and error. Some things are going to go wrong, and it's going to be really expensive to make that turn. So I cannot recommend enough that you check out the way the GAO evaluates this. I kind of fell down that rabbit hole and found it really interesting. So on top of this very expensive, very big project, the Trump administration decided we're going to add a new question. We're going to add a question about citizenship. Now, this question has been included on census forms from 1820 until about 1950. While some households receive forms that contain the question between 1960 and 2000. Now, since 2000, statisticians and Census Bureau officials have worried that asking about citizenship on the actual census would lower the participation rate and result in less accurate counting. So in 2010, the citizen question was asked on the American Community Survey, a longer form sent to about 2.6 percent of households. This is important to know because we've asked all kinds of weird questions on the census throughout Mm -hmm. history. We've asked about like what radio station you like to listen to on the census because it has been this incredibly unique opportunity to get data about who lives here in the United States and what we do and what our households are like. There are really intrusive questions on some forms that go out from the Census Bureau because the Census Bureau is not just working every 10 years. They're collecting data all the time. And that data, as Sarah said earlier, is used hugely by community organizations in the private sector and states. And so it's not that we've never approached the subject of citizenship in any of these formats. We very recently have. It's just that the actual census itself, the short form, which we've tried to keep short so that people would fill it out, has not included that question. So Wilbur Ross, the Secretary of Commerce, announces we're going to include the citizenship question last year. And you say, but why, Wilbur Ross, when there's been all this history 
that sometimes this decreases participation rate and results in less accurate counting. And he says, y'all, it's because the Trump administration really wants to do a better job of enforcing the Voting Rights Act. (laughs) Specifically, the Trump administration wants to ensure that states are not violating the ban on diluting minority voter influence. I cannot. I cannot. Wilbur Ross says, look, the Department of Justice really needs good information. And I've thought about different ways to give them that information. I thought about the American Community Survey, but I've decided it's not precise enough to actually inform their enforcement efforts. I've thought about using data from Social Security and Citizenship and Immigration Services, which is what the Census Bureau recommended. But Wilbur Ross says, that's not accurate enough either. We really need to do this right as it Mm -hmm. pertains to Voting Mm -hmm. Rights Act enforcement. So I've decided Mm -hmm. all we can do reluctantly is reinstate the question on the census. Trouble is, there's pretty much evidence directly contradictory to the idea that that is what motivated Wilbur Ross here. And this is when it gets real wacky. This will start sounding like a made-for-TV movie. Well, and just let me, let's cut to the chase and say what people who have lived this reality for a while believe Wilbur Ross is actually trying to do is, in fact, lower the participation rate of the census to swing more districts Republican. Mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. outcome of elections down the road. It is a long game play, but actually not all that long if you look at how districts are apportioned to try to do exactly the opposite of what Wilbur Ross has pretended is his reason for doing this. Not surprisingly, when he announces they're going to do this and say he wants to better enforce the Voting Rights Act, all kinds of states sue and say, I don't think so. But there's all this legal wrangling because there is a deadline. The government is telling the Supreme Court, you need to just go ahead and make this decision because the deadline is at the end of June and we have to start printing. So you need to tell us whether we can put this question or not. We don't need to be going through all these district and appellate courts because we're out of time. So the Supreme Court hears oral arguments in late April. And it's not looking great from the oral arguments because the conservative justices seem to feel like this is within the the purview of the Secretary of Commerce. Okay. And then this is where it gets wacky. Then there is a Republican redistricting strategist named Thomas Hoffeller. So he played a key role in adding this citizenship question to the census because he's this redistricting effort. So he dies. And his estranged daughter goes and gets several of his hard drives and starts going through his things and his death. And she finds on the hard drive all these emails indicating that it was never about the Voting Rights Act. It was always about swinging districts to the Republican Party. So then everybody goes back to all the courts, not just the Supreme Court, and says, hold up, wait a minute. We have more evidence. And that's what's happening when we get a Supreme Court decision. The Supreme Court decision is very complicated. Complicated. Because first, the court has to go through the standing analysis. Do these state and local governments have the right to be here? Can we actually redress their concerns in court? And they find yes, because states receive funding. There, There's a complicated standing analysis, but it ultimately ends in, yes, you are allowed to be a plaintiff. Green light. Let's go. 
then there are evidentiary issues. We've gone straight from the district court to the Supreme Court without appellate level review. And we have this wackiness around all of the evidence that's come in. This case has already been in front of the Supreme Court before because the plaintiffs wanted to depose Wilbur Ross directly. The Supreme Court said, no, they could not do that. So the evidentiary issues are really big here. The actual analysis, what forms the basis of the court's opinion here, was written by Justice Roberts and joined by the liberal justices of the court. But there are pieces along the way where liberal justices dissent and conservative justices concur, but they have different rationales. And so I'm going to break all of that down on the Nightly Nuance tonight. So if you want to get into the weeds of the court's opinion, you can join me there. But ultimately, what the court says is the Census Act, by which Congress delegated authority and responsibility to the Secretary of Commerce, puts all kinds of restrictions on how the Secretary of Commerce must act. So this court can review the discretion the Secretary exercises. This is not an executive branch, hands-off function. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it says we're going to be deferential to the secretary because that's how we roll here. But if the secretary's actions are arbitrary and capricious, we will overturn them. And they say, you know what? It wasn't arbitrary and capricious. It might not have been the best way to get this information, but it's okay. And this is really important. The Supreme Court left a big opening for future administrations to include the citizenship to include the citizenship question on the census. Mm -hmm. But there's another question, and that is, did the secretary's actions rest on pretext? Are you lying about why you're doing this? Mm -hmm. And Justice Roberts says, yes. Right. I like this quote. He quoted Judge Henry Friendly, for whom he clerked. He said, we are not required to exhibit a naivete from which ordinary citizens are free. I mean, I feel like the other conservative justices were basically like, if they say we're doing it because the sky is blue, then, or the sky is orange even, then we're just going to defer to them. And he's saying, okay, you guys, like, there has to be some level at which we look at why any administration under administrative law is doing something and not just say, well, you gave a reason. So that I mean, because that's just a rubber stamp. That doesn't make any sense. I'm with you, Justice Roberts. I read this opinion as Justice Roberts feeling pretty fed up. Mm -hmm. I -hmm. think he in if he heard this case 10,000 times in 9,999 of them would have green lighted the citizenship question on the census. He goes into all this detail about how the United Nations recommends collecting census-based citizenship information. Other major democracies, Canada, France, the United Kingdom, all of them ask questions about citizenship in their censuses. Justice Roberts clearly does not think this is a massive problem. He is peeved that the administration has lied to federal courts about it. And I think Mm -hmm. given the body of case law that the Trump administration is creating just every day, keeping the courts busy, I feel like this was a stand by Justice Roberts that they will respect the courts. So when this decision came out in the midst of the particularly harrowing, terrifying, upsetting crisis at the border, I was like, yes, finally a win because the administration department of justice came out and said we're not going to fight this we're going to abandon the citizenship question on the census and i was like hallelujah i'm gonna take that and then 
He wouldn't shut up about it. And now they're fighting it. They're changing lawyers. Ugh, it doesn't look good. So the disposition of this case is that it was remanded, which means it goes back to the agency. And the court has said, like, you got something better. You want to tell us the truth about why you did this? And maybe it will be okay. So if there's a real explanation, the court has said the agency needs to come forward with it, which means that the administration can continue down this path. And an assistant attorney general, Jody Hunt, said in a statement submitted to the district court in Southern Maryland, we at the Department of Justice have been instructed to examine whether there is a path forward consistent with the Supreme Court's decision that would allow us to include the citizenship question on the census. Now, let me just say, having spent a lot of my life working around lawyers and being one for a, a stint, not great when your lawyers are speaking in the passive voice. We have mm -hmm. been instructed. That's not great. That's not great for the client. And so the fact that lawyers are being changed out, I think, really signals that people are exceptionally uncomfortable with what they're being asked to do in this case. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But, I mean, they've been, you know, yelling and shouting, we're going to run out of time, we're out of time, June 30th, that's our deadline. So I don't, you know, when we're going back to the beginning of the conversation that this is a huge, expensive, complicated deployment of government resources, do we really think that they have the ability to stall and to, I mean, I think they're already printing some of the forms. So I, I don't know. Also important when you think about the court's reasoning here. So let's let's just review quickly. The census is Congress's responsibility and Congress delegated that the task responsibility to the, the Commerce Department. OK, but it's Congress's constitutionally. And the court has just said what the administration was doing as it exercised that responsibility was a lie. And we're not going to accept that. Now, the president thinks he might be able to just skirt this whole thing by issuing an executive order requiring the Secretary of Commerce to add the question. That's not how executive orders work. Am I wrong about that? As with everything in the Trump administration, there are people who are trying to make arguments justifying it. And look, this builds on the entire theory of a unitary executive that there are folks mm -hmm. in conservative world who love. I don't really understand how you can call yourself a conservative and believe that the president needs to act like a king, but we are in that universe now. So there are people, Hugh Hewitt is one of them, for example, who are touting this theory that the language of the 14th Amendment would give the president this power and, in fact, responsibility. And we will link to a really good Atlantic article that really lays out what that theory is. And I think it fairly lays out that theory. And then it makes an argument against that theory. So wherever you fall on this, I think it's worth reading. What concerns me is just that I do feel like Chief Justice Roberts set a line down here and the conservative justices of the court did not join him in setting that line down. Hmm. And I don't know where this would land if he issued an executive order and the court were reviewing that executive order, which the court can do. Federal courts can review executive orders. I feel like he forgets that. You know what I feel like? I feel like for the mid let's say, 20th century, the Supreme Court was giving all this power to Congress, particularly under the Commerce Clause. 
Power to Congress, power to Congress, power to Congress. And then you have, beginning in the 1980s, the Supreme Court coming back and being like, no Congress, no Congress, no Congress. We want to give all this power to the executive branch. (laughs) And it just feels like we're overcorrecting. You know, if you had a problem with the overreach of the Commerce Clause, I don't know, this just this entire idea of, well, then that the answer to that is to give permission to the executive branch to do whatever they want to do. I don't know. It doesn't seem like a great direction to go into. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online, and we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, I cannot believe how young you look, and I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, a.k.a. problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST. 
15. This whole case is complicated for me because I probably come out where Justice Roberts did that properly done. I don't think it would be unconstitutional to add this question. I don't think it would be wise, but I don't think it would be unconstitutional. And wise is not the standard for judicial review. So it's another thing where I find my thinking altered by the fact that this administration speaks with such callousness lies about what its actual goals are, and approaches our entire system as though it's a game. It's like the wine paired with gerrymandering, you know? We want to make sure that the system is, in fact, rigged in our favor (laughs) the best we can all the way forward. And that makes me sick. And I don't understand how the conservative justices on the court are willing to greenlight that. More than that, though, I don't understand why Congress doesn't act here, because it is Congress's census, and Congress could just pass a law, I think, saying, hey, we delegated this authority to you, and we're going to put a new limitation on it. You may not ask this question. Except for Congress is in two bodies, and Mitch McConnell's never going to allow that to come before the Senate. So that's part of this jockeying among the branches of government that you were just describing, Sarah, because if the court is the only branch that's willing to correct sometimes and willing to pull back and willing to give, this thing doesn't work. Congress has to get in there, too. At some point, we're going to need a president who says, you know what? Executive branch has been a little aggressive. I need to pull this back. We're going to need someone who is willing to not exercise power that she or he has in that office. And I'm just... I I would like these issues to come in some format where we could all think about those big questions. And the census is like such a weird foil for that. But it's a really good one to start thinking about where all the levers are among the three branches. I mean, I just think you have to get to a point where the other side feels like I can put down my weapon because you're going to put down your weapon, too. And we're not there. I'm not willing to put down my weapon as a Democrat. I'm not willing to say, oh, let's just all step back and look at the system so that it can functions better. As long as Mitch McConnell's in control of the Senate, that would be naive at best and ignorant at worst, considering his history and his decision making and the way that he manipulates the body to ever increase his party's power. It's just hard. It's just hard to ask, you know, one side to do that, either side to do that, because every decision, every piece of history up until this point tells us you're going to get screwed if you do that. If you depend on the other side to play by the rules, you will get screwed. What's on your mind outside politics? I read this really fun piece called The Guilty Pleasures of Mansion Porn that we'll link in the show notes. It reminded me of a website one of our listeners shared about McMansions that is hilarious and a good way to waste a lot of time if you're in the mood. But this article was talking about the mansion section of the Wall Street Journal and how it sort of unironically provides stories about people who you know, pluck real estate. Like it uses these really funny verbs. Like they just plucked it or they scooped it up. It was only, 
you know, $2.7 million or whatever. <laughs> and it, it was a really fun read. And it also made me think about all the ways that I probably participate in something like this. I mean, in, in some ways, we've talked about this before. HGTV is that, right? You have this kind of sense of, I'm watching other people do the thing that I wish that I could be doing right now because it would feel really great. But also, it's probably not very good for me. So anyway, I thought it was a really, really fun piece about kind of how we can't, even though real estate has looked us in the face as Americans and said, I am not your friend. I do not love you. We just cannot Mm -hmm. give up our addiction to it. I don't get a lot of joy out of that. I just get angry at the rich people. So that's not a good psychological hobby for me, (laughs) even though I do like that McMansion site. I spent a lot of time this week thinking about goodbyes My best friend and her family are moving to Germany for two years. They came and spent a part of the week. And then in a piece of scheduling, I did not fully think through. They said goodbye yesterday morning on the day we're recording this on Monday. They left on Sunday. And then I drove my eldest child to summer camp for a week and had to say goodbye to him. I I did not do a good job of lining these events up because... It's just so hard to be away from people you love. Um, We're going to have, you know, technology. It's not like I won't get to talk to her just as much as I always did. But, you know, having somebody that you're used to seeing often so far away is so hard. And it's the same thing with summer camp. Every time I think this is going to be so good for him. Also, I didn't have a, like, very traditional summer camp experience. I went to a couple church camps. I went to a journalism camp in high school. If you need, that probably tells you all the thing you need to know about me. But... So I really want my kids to have that. I go to the same camp every summer. I work my way up. I become a counselor, that very traditional experience. And so I know in my head, like, logically, it's such a good idea. But, man, when we drop him off, we have to drive so far away, and he's there. They don't let us talk to him. There's, like, no texting or calling or anything. It's so hard. Is it Monday through Friday? Sunday Mm -hmm. Sunday through Friday? Sunday through Friday. Well, that's not a goodbye. I mean, not to diminish the hardness of it, but like, I just wonder if it might help you if you think of it as a see you later instead of a goodbye. No, it's not very long. It's just the idea that we can't. I just wish if there was like a phone call on Wednesday, I think I would feel better. It's just, you know, when you're when they're your babies and you're used to like talking them, knowing about their every day, you know, they're always so close to you, your physical presence. It's just it's it's hard. It's hard. And then my somebody on Instagram was like, oh, just wait till you I I got through all of my eldest. But then I just dropped my baby off. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, yeah, I'll probably get to a point where I'm dropping all three off. Yikes. And what a fun week you'll have when you do that. Right. Now, that is probably and they'll be together. It'll probably be easier when they're together. I think it will, too. I think it'll be easier just next time when we're dropping off Griffin and Amos together. I think except I don't think we will, because I think in their ages, I think they'll be in two different camps the first year. But then eventually they'll be together. But. You know, it's just I've very been I've been very much in this sort of bittersweet time progressing, I think partly because I read Lori Gottlieb's Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. And she talks a lot about the passage of time and the vulnerability of acknowledging how quickly time passes and we grow old and we miss opportunities and people we love grow up and leave us. And it's just, you know, I've been in that space. I've been listening to Sawyer Brown's The Road. Do you remember that 1990s country song? Why are you doing that to yourself, Sarah? <laughs> I don't know. My brain keeps singing it. And, I, you know, they tell you the best thing to do about a song stuck in your head is to listen to it. But, I mean, I just keep, like, I'm just in this kind of embracing the 
the bittersweet sweet nature of the passage of time. And, and I think there's something about summer, too, that's just so, I don't know, it, it kind of brings that up in you. It's like, it's so precious. It's so short. There's a lot of time to sit and think and relax and look at the sun and, and you know, look at these, like, very idyllic summer memories playing out in front of you. At least I feel like that. And so I'm just in this very much kind of mopey place about time passing. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's because we do have all this travel coming up and I'm like, sort of know that's going to fly by and gearing up for that. I don't know, but I'm just in this very kind of, <laughs> you can't hold back the hands of time. It's just something you got to do. I feel you, Sawyer Brown. I feel you, brother. The summer is different different for me than when I was working because I'm so much more a witness to everything that my kids are doing. You know, I'm just mm-hmm. around Jane all the time this summer. And so I do notice her evolving more than I would while she's in school. We were at a water park over the weekend and she ran off with a friend of hers. And there were lots of times in this super crowded water park when I couldn't see them. I didn't know where they were. I looked over once and spotted her going off a really high diving board. And I realized that this is kind of the first time that she wasn't saying, Mommy, look, 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 you know, when she was doing something like that, that she was just having fun for herself and not needing me to be there to watch. And so I had some of the same kinds of realizations. I am so proud of her, though. Like, I love, I think that for me, the the bigger, any kind of sadness I have about them aging is supplanted by like, wow, like, she doesn't need me anymore. That's amazing for her, you know? And, and maybe some of that is because I still have Ellen, who's four. But I get what you're saying. I do think summer, because of the activities and the proximity, it really highlights this the the change of seasons in their lives. And it goes so fast. It just goes so fast that this 10-year-old who I feel like I gave birth to five minutes ago is now at camp. Just, I don't know what he's doing. That's unbelievable to me that I just, I don't know what he had for breakfast. I don't know how he slept last night. I don't know what Lego he's obsessed with right now. It just oh, blows my mind. Blows my mind. I hope he has the most wonderful time. Me too. He will. I know he will. But it's just, oh, man. I like them. I like I like my little ducklings all under wing. It's just the reality of the situation until they get on their nerves and then I want them to go away. So a good challenge for both of you. <laughs> we wanted to acknowledge that we were going to be joined by Governor Steve Bullock today. We have not banished Governor Bullock to an island. It's just that as happens when you're running a state and running for president, his schedule changed. We appreciate his team continuing to work with us to get him here at some point. So Stay tuned for more on Governor Steve Bullock, and we hope that our conversation about the census was as stimulating as that discussion might have been. We also wanted to acknowledge lots and lots of things happened when we were gone, including two very scary earthquakes in Southern California. So our thoughts are with y'all down there. We know that's scary and nerve-wracking and anxiety-inducing, and I hope that these small earthquakes lead to a lot of good infrastructure and changes to protect against hopefully big earthquakes that will never come. We will be back in your ears on Friday talking about campaign finance. We've got lots of questions to answer. We're really excited to have that conversation. We'll do the five things you need to know on Friday. And then next week, we'll be having a conversation about campaign finance. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all.
Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. Thanks for making us sound better, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our managing director, which means we could not make it without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help us make the show. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Our executive producers are Tracy Putoff, Cherry Haas, Tim Miller, David McWilliams, Joshua Allen, Linda Rucker, Martha Bernatsky, Melanie Cravey, and Tiffany Hassler. Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.